0: Before we get started, I have to warn you about something. We're going to talk about the discovery of one family's hidden history. It includes a wartime sexual assault. It's a relatively brief portion of this podcast, but we want to make sure you know. Helen was nearing the end of her long life, she was over 90 fighting dementia, and walking with the help of a caregiver. At least her surroundings were comfortable. From her apartment, she could see lake freighters gliding down the Detroit River. Her unit was roomy and well-furnished. After years of speaking English, Helen had reverted to her native German. Der Bruder, they would hear her say, a reference to her brother. She was apparently the only person alive who knew what happened to him and to his family. The secret would soon die with her. Or so it would seem.
1: I can't help but wonder how many times had Helen gone into the desk, and taken out the letters and reread these details and cried, and cried for the people she loved so much.
0: I'm Roger Webber. Welcome to Mismatch: Stories of the Incompatible, the Unsuitable, and the Out of Step.
1: Uh, my name is uh, Tim Mallet.
0: Tim is the unlikely discoverer and steadfast keeper of a stranger's story. Her family's tragedy grabbed him and wouldn't let go. But for the story to finally emerge 70 years later, strange things had to happen: Tim's purchase of a piece of junk furniture, his chance meeting with a Hollywood star, and his unlikely decision when he was in his 20s to keep an old woman's fading letters.
1: In my mind, I know these people very well. I feel like I've I mean I've lived with them for 30 years now, so I've gotten very familiar with who they are.
0: So at a very early age, I got exposed to a lot of really interesting people. He takes me to the place where it all began.
1: Uh, We are uh, in Detroit, Michigan, driving down East Jefferson Avenue along the Detroit River. These are some of the other apartments along the river from the same time period, but the Whittier holds a very special place uh, on the river.
0: Whittier Towers is a high-rise retirement community. Tim started working there in 1987 when he was still in college.
1: Do you see the windows that have the cornice on them? And then third window up, right at that court? I believe that was her apartment.
0: Helen Seba's apartment.
1: My only true memory of her is walking down the hallway at the Whittier with a caregiver. At that point in time, she was somewhat
0: distraught. You could say that Tim met Helen and her family after she died. Her secret was tucked inside a broken-down desk, which, along with her other furniture, was part of an estate sale. That's where Tim bought her desk, though it wasn't his first choice.
1: My girlfriend had moved out, needed a dresser, and uh, there was a dresser. I paid $25. I can actually remember what the dresser looked like. Um, I went to pick up the dresser, and the dresser was gone. So I spoke to the person who was conducting the sale and I said, you know, I've paid $25. I'm supposed to pick up this dresser. And he said, well, it's gone and he wouldn't give me my $25 back. And I had a receipt and he said, you can have that. And he pointed to the corner and there was a desk and it was really uh, in rough shape. It was a very tall, straight desk and it had uh, a drop down front and the, the front was... Twisted off, and some of the fretwork on top had been crushed. And uh, after some consideration, I thought, well, I'd rather have the desk than just lose the $25 completely. So um, I took the desk.
0: That desk was heavy, weighing well over 100 pounds. Tim and a buddy loaded it into a borrowed minivan, drove it to his upper flat, and hauled the desk up a steep flight of stairs.
1: And it's got a very nice. Uh, piece to the back that has little drawers and pigeon holes for letters and cubby holes for other things, and the pigeon holes were loose, and I was going to uh, put a set screw in the top and set the pigeon so they wouldn't wiggle, and I tugged on them, and a box came out, and it was a secret compartment. And, um, my first thought was, gosh, there could be stocks, money, gold, you know, I was, I was really excited and, and thinking, you know, you, you read about those things and you read about desks and secret compartments and all these treasures they hold. Um, but that's not what was in there. What was in there? There was a passport. There was, um, a wedding album, a green wedding album with the date of 1930 on it. And there uh, was a a leather portfolio, and inside of the leather portfolio were all of these letters, and they were in German. Some of them were in envelopes, some of them weren't. And I was struck by the dates on the letters, and the dates were from uh, 1930s through probably the 1950s. Could you read what was in German? I couldn't read anything. I I didn't, there was, there was nothing in English. And, you know, I looked at them and and my uh, girlfriend always gave me a hard time. Even back then I may have, um, I like to call it collect things. Some people might say hoard things. Um, And I didn't want to toss the letters. Uh, So I folded them up and I put them back in their drawer.
0: Well, let's explore that a little bit. You've got a rickety old desk you got a bunch of old letters in German that you can't understand. You're in your 20s. Why not throw them out?
1: That was a good question, and at the time I was struck that if somebody took the time to hide them and put them in there, they had to say something important, and they were important to that person. So I I didn't feel it would be right to throw them out. And and I had the sense from the timing of the letters uh, that you know, they were related to the war. But uh, again, I that was just a hunch, nothing else.
0: So uh, you've got the desk, you've got the letters. What happens in the following years?
1: Well, off and on, when I would meet somebody from Germany that was older, I would ask them to take a look at the letters. And I've had, I probably had mm, three or four individuals look at the letters. And every time somebody looked at them, they they came back with words like horrible, awful, terrible. I don't want to talk about it. You need to put these back. Um, this is too upsetting.
0: Tim even asked his butcher for help getting a translation. The man's 85-year-old wife was German. He took the letters home to her, but soon brought them back. He told Tim the letters were giving his wife nightmares.
1: And I I got the sense that there was a great tragedy that had happened. And, and, and I got some details along the way that concerned a little girl and, and the invasion of the eastern part of Germany at the
0: end of the war. and, and um, It seemed to be enough information to kind of tantalize you to hold on and and keep searching.
1: I don't want to say it was haunting, and I couldn't get an answer. And, and um, it, it was always there.
0: So, Tim held on to Helen's letters, with only an inkling of what they were about. He kept them in their original hiding place, even though the desk broke apart during his move from Detroit to Dallas. He knew he should get the letters translated, but he put it off for 25 years. He began unraveling the mystery of the letters after a strange coincidence on a flight to Nashville.
1: And at the the very last minute, this petite lady walks on the airplane, has her back to me, and she's struggling to put a bag up in the overhead.
2: Which is always too high for me because I'm only four, you know 5'4 and have a bad back, so it's usually a jumping experience whilst bouncing it off my head. And uh, he realized that he didn't want to watch me do that, so he picked up my bag, did it, sat down, and looked like he was about to go to work.
1: She proceeds to get on the phone and look out the window and talk, and I was working on a presentation, and she started to engage me in conversation
2: and then somehow or other it got into sort of a little bit of question like you know are you going home the usual thing you ask someone who sits next to you to be polite
1: ultimately the voice sounded so familiar that i looked over and um it was jane seymour the actress uh, the bond girl dr quinn no one
2: around here has ever heard of a lady doctor that's a shame reverend every town should have at least one
0: Jane Seymour's movies include Live and Let Die and Somewhere in Time. On TV, she starred in Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. And the same year Tim found the letters from World War II, Jane was playing a role from World War II. I'm
2: an American. I'm an American.
0: In War and Remembrance, she portrayed an American Jewish woman trapped in Europe. Jane says she takes more pride in that role than any other.
1: And she talked about going to Auschwitz and and participating in, in the recreation of that and what a profound effect that had on her. How did the conversation turn to the letters? If you meet Jane, family is very important to Jane. And as she was introducing herself personally to me, She talked a lot about her family history.
2: And he said, you know, I've got this desk, and I I just, it's like, I don't know what to do. Give me some advice. I found this desk, had it for ages. And then one day I found there was a hidden compartment, and I opened it up, and there were all these letters.
1: She started asking me questions, and I said, well, I really don't have the details. And she said, well, you need to have those letters translated. Promise me you will have those letters translated.
2: You should find out. I said, somebody purposely put something that they valued and collected in a hidden compartment on purpose. So somebody cared about this material.
1: So you don't say no to Jane Seymour, so I I did it. <laughs>
0: she insisted. She insisted. Jane knows more about World War II from her own dramatic family history than from a Hollywood script. She'll share that with you later in part two. The important point for now is, Jane gave Tim a needed kick in the pants to finally do something about those mysterious letters. Before we continue our story, we want to remind you that Helen's letters contain some disturbing information about the fate of her family in Germany. Tim Mallet, the self-appointed caretaker of the old German letters, was now ready to get the letters translated. His journey to that point was strange and serendipitous, taking the job at Helen's retirement community, buying her beaten up desk that wasn't the furniture he wanted, finding the hidden letters, deciding to keep them, which I can't imagine many 22-year-olds doing, and 25 years later, bumping into a Hollywood celebrity with her own World War II connection. So, Jane Seymour has given you a directive. What happened? So I found
1: someone who was in her 20s that uh, was very fluent in both English and German, and she took on the task of translating them for me.
0: One of the biggest challenges was deciphering the German handwriting. Tim remains deeply grateful to his translator, who worked for over six months to unlock the story. What was your reaction when you found out what those letters said? Gut-wrenching, which is just painful painful. But not all the letters were gut-wrenching. Here's one from Helen's husband, Max Seba, writing to her in November of 1939. They had fled Germany and were living in England.
2: My dear companion of my life, let us not try to think back. One year from emigration. let us be happy that we are together again. We have to keep on going signed your husband aka little man darling
0: max and helen had been living in danzig a historically german city it came under international protection after the end of world war one max's reference to one year from emigration ties perfectly into what happened in november of 1938 kristallnacht the night of broken glass Ann Berg is a native of Germany and teaches German history at the University of Michigan.
3: Hordes of violent Nazis and Nazi sympathizers raided homes and businesses, broke windows, dragged people into the streets, beat people up. About 100 people died in these violent outbursts that were supposed to be spontaneous but actually were not, were orchestrated. In the aftermath, the Jewish community was fined for the damages, because it was presented as if they had incited this violence, and they had, I think, a billion uh, Reichsmark fines that the Jewish community had to come up with to pay for the destruction of property that these uh, thugs produced during that night. Synagogues burned, uh, stores burned, and it was just excessively violent.
0: Helen was Protestant, Max was Jewish, the Nuremberg Laws of 1935 prohibited Jews from marrying non-Jews. Max and Helen married before that, so he had some protection. But he still would have faced enormous challenges had he remained in Nazi Germany, like continuing his career as a physician.
3: They couldn't live a normal life, so they, they couldn't practice their profession. Doctors, for example, could only serve the Jewish community. Um, there were Jewish cultural centers, There were Jewish, there were cinemas, and other cultural institutions that would serve only the Jewish community. Parks and park benches were only for non-Jewish Germans reserved and so forth. Curfews for Jews were different than for non-Jewish Germans. And so they are basically ostracized from political, cultural, social, and economic life. Unable to to practice their normal existence. They were completely dependent on their non-Jewish spouses.
0: So for Helen, at this point in her life, things are looking up. She's out of Germany. She's, she, she's in the safe surroundings of England. But what is yet to come is the heartbreak. Well, Helen is out. Helen had a
1: brother, uh, and his name was Willie, and Willie and his family
0: stayed behind. Willie Weiss. He was a physician who grew up with Helen in Konigsberg, Germany. Willie was married to Dora, Their young daughter was named Ursula. They were living in Hamburg in 1943 until British and American planes rained bombs on the city. One of the greatest serial stories of the war, the battering of Hamburg. By night and day, the big German city was
4: subjected to Allied air assaults without parallel in history. As each of the British...
3: Over the course of about 10 days, at the end of July, early August, the Allies basically razed the city to the ground. The problem with this particular incident was that the weather w- was super hot. And so phosphor bombs were, were thrown and other incendiary devices, and they led to massive conflagrations. So the firestorm that developed, ca- developed kind of sucked the air out of um, the city, and the water that was in water tanks started boiling Um, People were suffocating in in shelters and bunkers and cellars and so forth. Everything kind of melted. It was absolutely horrific. The uh, official numbers afterwards range about 30,000. People have perished in the bombings. 900,000 people left the city were refugees.
0: Including the Weiss family. They relocated to the city of Neustrelitz, about 60 miles north of Berlin. As Willie and Dora settled into their new home, the tables were turning on the Third Reich. The German army began a full retreat after heavy losses in the Soviet Union.
3: The Germans waged a war of extermination in the East. That meant that every living thing was targeted. Every village was supposed to be burned. There was nothing supposed to be left standing. As the German army marched into Poland and Russia and on the retreat, the, the, the Red Army, they came back through a territory that was completely destroyed. The Germans had burnt down villages, smashed babies against walls.
0: Retaking town after town, Soviet forces find a ravaged country left by the Nazis. But Hitler paid a price for this wanton destruction. That price was more than five million Nazi soldiers.
3: So within the the Red Army's high command, there was a tacit agreement that the sort of vi- violent retribution was not only condoned, but kind of welcomed.
0: The Soviet troops entered Neustrelitz, the Weiss's new city, in the final days of April 1945.
3: And so within the first several days and weeks of the occupation of Germany, there were mass rapes of German women from ages about 12 to 70. Um, In the the initial phases of the occupation, those were kind of like very public. Often uh, women were raped repeatedly by uh, entire uh, groups of soldiers.
0: Berg says the Red Army's victimization of German citizens must be viewed in the context of previous atrocities by German troops whose government started the war.
3: The violence was wanton and indiscriminate. It was, however, as if the Soviet Union was inscribing total victory and uh, unconditional surrender on women's bodies at that time. That's how, how I think historically this can be explained, and this is something that um, is, really, is really difficult to talk about because it affected um, almost every woman in, in those parts of Germany.
0: That's the big picture. The hidden letters revealed how one family, the Weiss family, was victimized. By the spring of 1945, the killing of soldiers, the bombing of cities, and the slaughter of innocents had raged in Europe for nearly six years. The Weiss family had invited a woman named Olga to live with them. She arrived as a refugee and became a witness to their story.
4: My dearest Mrs. Seba.
0: Olga wrote to Helen Seba to share the heartbreaking news about what happened to her brother and his family. It's one of the letters hidden in Helen's desk.
4: It's a night from April 28th to April 29th, the Soviets came. The brute force, rape, and looting we were exposed to in the basement by the Soviets cannot be described.
0: Here's Tim Mallet again, the man who discovered, preserved, and finally understood the translated letters.
1: And the Weiss family was um, in a flat in a building where his office was, and they fled to the cellar, and they took their little girl, Ursula, Allah they call her, uh, and uh, they put her under burlap. And I, I believe they sat on her, and the Russians uh, took Willie's wife, Dora, and raped her, and raped her in front of him and made him watch. And at some point, the, the Weisses deemed it safe enough to go back up to their flat, and they took their daughter upstairs with them.
0: But the invading soldiers were not finished. They broke through the doors and found Ursula, who was only 13 years old. Her parents tried to hold on to her, but the men pulled her off and took her away. When they brought the girl back, they announced that more soldiers would be coming. At that point, according to Olga's account, Ursula said to her father, Let us die. Ursula wanted her father, the physician, to inject her, his wife, and himself before the soldiers came back.
4: The vices grabbed in despair the one thing that they had always planned, potassium cyanide. When I realized that it was getting serious, I thought I was going to lose my mind. Almost on my knees, I begged them to abandon their plan. This was probably the darkest day of my life when I saw the three people, the only ones I knew, taken in front of my eyes. Death came in a flash, and I envied it. I pleaded to Dr. Weiss, the last one to die, to take me with him.
0: But Dr. Weiss had only enough poison for the three of them, Ursula first, then Dora, then himself. Finally, they were motionless on a bed, with Ursula in the middle. Olga saw everything. She honored Dr. Weiss's last request.
4: We shrouded our loved ones in jackets and blankets and managed for them to be laid to rest next to each other. Ursula in the middle, just like Dr. Weiss wanted. I exactly know the place where they are sleeping and I visit them every Sunday.
0: In Neustrelitz alone, between 500 and 700 people committed suicide as the war ended. It happened throughout Germany.
3: Suicides were often um, the only way that people felt that they could escape. And particularly in situations where then, you know, families were made to watch repeatedly the rape of their daughters or wives and so forth. Those kinds of experiences produce produce massive trauma Nazi propaganda also anticipated mass violence and kind of warned Germans against uh, what would happen to them and their women and children at the hands of the, of the Russian beasts, and that's the terminology that they would use, um, if they didn't fight to the death. And that's the sort of context that I read those letters in. And when it affects you, it all of a sudden becomes personal.
4: announce the official surrender.
0: On May 8, 1945, President Harry Truman made this announcement.
2: I wish that Franklin D. Roosevelt had lived to see this day. General
0: Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom
2: fly all over Europe.
0: It was only one week after the deaths of Willie, Dora, and Ursula.
2: Throughout the world, throngs of
4: people hailed the end of the war in Europe. It is five years and more since Hitler marched
0: into Poland. We can only imagine how Helen, safe in England, reacted to V E Day. She received Olga's letter more than a year later.
1: Now knowing the details that I know, I I can't help but wonder how many times had Helen gone into the desk and taken out the letters and reread these details and cried and cried for the people she loved so much. It was fresh news, I'm certain, each time, you know, she opened the desk.
0: Helen eventually found out what happened to her family. Is it better in that case to know or not to know?
1: I think it's better to know if you're going to prevent it from happening again or if you're you're the more these stories get told and and the more real they are and the more we know what happened to the people we love I think the more we can advocate on on their behalf and others who whom it's happened to
0: Tim Mallet had worked hard to unearth the stranger's story but the work wasn't finished see if I can find the phone number. In our second and final episode of The Hidden Letters, Tim locates Helen's grandson. Frank, this is Tim Mallard calling. How will he react to this total stranger who knows so much about his family? Mismatch is produced by Zach Rosen and written and narrated by me, Roger Weber. For photos of The Hidden Letters, their hiding place, and the people involved, go to our website, mismatchpodcast.com. The Holocaust Memorial Center in suburban Detroit helped us with this podcast. We also want to thank Tad Davis for his production help and Terry Turpin Amato and Tony Amato for their voice portrayals. The second episode of The Hidden Letters is available now.